I'm Ed Gross, and you're listening to CloserWeekly.com's classic TV and film podcast, where we celebrate the golden age of television and movies, then and now. It isn't often that a fictional television show can have a genuine impact and influence on parts of the real world, but that's what happened with Wise Guy and its star, Ken Wall. For a little background, binge TV is the norm these days. But back in the 1980s, the networks demanded that television shows be standalone, with little connective tissue between episodes. Enter writer-producer Stephen J. Cannell, who, along with Frank Lupo, created Wise Guy, which ran from 1987 to 1990. In it, Ken plays OCB undercover operative Vinny Terranova, who moves from one assignment to another in storylines presented as arcs. Those ranged from four to 11 episodes each. Without realizing it, the seeds were being laid for binge TV, appropriate since Wise Guy is addictive. Critically acclaimed for his portrayal and winning a Golden Globe Award in the process for it, Ken's life and career took an unexpected turn when he was involved in an accident that was so debilitating that it forced him to retire. However, he's found new purpose in life by working for veterans of the armed services and the Pets for Vets program. Part of that is spreading the word for the Pause Act, short for Puppies Assisting Wounded Service Members, which would more easily bring veterans together with domestic rescue animals. On top of that, and admittedly not quite as weighty, is the recent revelation that James Gagliano, who spent 25 years as part of the FBI, including as an undercover agent, was directly influenced by Wise Guy and Ken's portrayal of Vinnie Terranova to join the Bureau in the first place. A perfect example of life imitating art. In this episode of the Classic TV Podcast, which you should be listening to on Spotify, we're talking to Ken, who doesn't do a lot of interviews, about all of this and more. It made headlines, and for good reason, I think, in terms of Television, yeah, I mean, life rather, imitating television. When we heard about this guy, James Gagliano, who was so influenced by Wise Guy that he decided he wanted to be his own Vinnie Terranova. And I'm wondering what your yeah. feeling is when you heard about this. Honestly, I was floored when I heard that. I mean, it's one thing to have people enjoy your performance as an actor, but it's quite another thing for someone to want to emulate you to the point where they actually want to be what your character is. So I was beyond flattered and, and honored and all of that because um, it was just incredible. I actually, through the magic of social media, I actually talked to the guy and he was telling me his story. And it was just incredible how he just... the. the characterization of Vinnie Terranova just really made him want to become that. And the process that he went through, you know, he was at West Point, he was in the military, and then he got out, and he did the whole training for the FBI, and he wanted to become an undercover agent, and he did. He's retired now, but he did it for, um, how long did he say that? 10 years, 15 years? Wow. I think he was in the in the FBI for 25 years in total, but I think he was undercover for 10 or 15 years, which is actually quite a long time to be undercover. Oh, yeah. And he had spent time, a lot of time, with Sammy Gravano, Sammy the Bull, who a lot of people will remember was the underboss of John Gotti, right. who turned on him. So, I mean, he is the real deal. And the fact that I had anything to do with that at all, I mean, it was just amazing. I mean, so it was so humbling to hear that. I, I was just in awe when he was telling me his story. So it's a great feeling to know that you can inspire someone. It's so gratifying that you can inspire someone to that degree, that they will go as far as wanting to become your character. Yeah. And then, well, then I, I think I know that I did a pretty good job doing it then. Because, <laughs> right. it, you know, it, it's one thing if the audience likes what you do and the critics like what you do, but to have somebody actually want to become your character, then I think you got to say, yeah, I think I pretty well nailed it. Man. At least for that guy. Absolutely. So, yeah, it was very, very gratifying. Did he say to you or express to you what it was about Vinny and the show itself that was so inspiring if there was anything specific yeah, I asked him that yeah. and he said it was nothing in particular it was just the I think what he really went for was the um, overall characterization that showed how human Vinny was that he wasn't just some superhero in a cape that was infallible that because it showed his his 
weaknesses as well as his strengths and his familial ties and the ties with his friends and the ties with his neighborhood, that all of that just really stuck a chord within him. And he found that to be very realistic. And I must say, I've heard from um, older guys who were already undercover or who were already retired undercover guys. I had one, uh, he wasn't a fed, but he was in a, the New York police department who was undercover. And he sent me his gold badge when he retired. And he wrote me a letter. This is while we were still doing the show. So it was uh, before social media. Right. And he wrote me a handwritten letter and said, whatever you're doing on this show, keep doing it because your portrayal is spot on, the reality. And he said, and I don't mean the criminal stuff. He said, I mean the family stuff, the friend stuff, the the doubts that you go through, the the, the mental distress that you go through. Wow. So, and I still, obviously, I still have that badge. I got it pinned inside my wallet. And it's a, a, a gold detective's badge. That's pretty cool. City. Yeah, very cool. And one of my most prized possessions. Well, again, like you were suggesting a couple of minutes ago, just the fact that, you know, a, an acting job you did and did well, but it's still connected with people. And, and yeah. especially on that level, I think that's, that's, yeah. that's, that's pretty that's impressive. that's the most important thing. I mean, that's why we do this. You know, I, like many other actors, I consider acting as a, a form of storytelling. And if you can uh, tell a story that affects someone so deeply as to change the course of their life, well, that's the ultimate. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's, it's better than the awards. It's, and, and believe me, I'm not like a lot of actors that say they don't care about awards. I do. I love it. I, I'm a very competitive person. Okay. And I loved winning that award. You know, and, but this is even better than that. Yeah. The fact that you could change someone's life. Well, like it's a that. more personal connection than it is even an award. Award is lovely and, you know, well, yeah. d job well done. But here's something, a real personal connection you're making in a way. That's right. Yeah. yeah. The award is a pat on the back, which is great. Yeah. But this thing is a whole other thing. Oh, yeah. It's so beyond that. Well, it made him change the course of his life. Yeah. And that's just mind boggling. I mean, it really is so humbling to think that. Because the one thing that really we really went for on that show was not so much about the crime stuff, but we really wanted to portray Vinny and, to a lesser degree, Mick Pike and Lifeguard as full, complete human beings with everything that goes along with that, not just his what he's like on the job. And we were able to do that, and it's... Uh, Again, so gratifying that it was able to affect somebody yeah. to that level. A few people, not just him, but you know, he was younger. So when he saw it, he was in his early 20s. And that made him make the decision to change his life to become that. And you, you just can't top that. No. You just can't. Not at all. You know, did, yeah. he, did he give you any sense, though, of after coming after the experience was over? You know, he did it. He trained. He did this. He went undercover. He came out from undercover. Did he express any sort of, you know, impact that being undercover for so many years had on him? Because obviously Vinny would come in and out of undercover, but he, more or less he was undercover all the time. What and we saw the impact of the character. But what was the impact on this guy being undercover for all these years? Well, from what he's told me and from what I've seen that he's written, that it was pretty much like he expected it to be. It wasn't like he had this you know, um, idea, this fanciful idea when he was in his early 20s and fantasy about what it was going, going to be like to be a Vinnie Terranova. He went, he did it, he retired, he survived, he made it out okay. And he said that it was pretty right on you know you're not able to tell your family or your friends what you're doing so that was even more amazing to me that his experience because you know a lot of times young people will have a fantasy about something and very rarely does the reality live up to what the fantasy is no matter what it is and in this case it did at least according to James Gagliano it right. did so uh, yeah which to me was even more incredible. Oh, yeah. Because there was nothing that was traumatizing to him, at least long term, because 
he was able to do it, and he seemed to be prepared for it from what he told me because of what he saw in the characterization. That's amazing. Isn't it? Yeah, that really is amazing. I know, it's mind-boggling. Well, you know what's interesting, too, is, I mean, and you, and you do look at the show, and I think that's one of the strengths and probably what appealed to him so much is Vinny, unlike a lot of heroes, didn't go through the motions of being undercover and, you know, arrest the bad guy at the end and that was it. This is a guy who was emotionally touched, sometimes yes. scarred by what he went through over the course of yes, that show. absolutely. And, and thereby, that's, that's how um, Mr. Gagliano was prepared for all that. Right. So he told me that when he spent all this time with uh, Sammy Gravano, he actually got to like him. Not wow. unlike how Vinny got to like and even love Sonny Steelgrave. Right. But because he saw that in the characterization, he was prepared for it. So it didn't screw him up as badly as Sonny screwed up Vinny. Right. Because he had the experience through Vinny seeing it on the show, so he was all very mentally prepared for that. Which, again, it's just... <laughs> you just... <laughs> It's incredible. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm tripping all over myself trying to describe it because it's just so unbelievably not just gratifying, but it's like, wow, I cannot. It's unbelievable that you would have that kind of impact on someone. Absolutely. And the more I listen to him talk about things, I think, well, I'm just listening on the other end, shaking my head. Right. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> that's so. It's not like I know him uh, very well. I've talked to him a couple times on the phone, but I'm telling you, from what I hear from him, he seems to be completely normal and well-adjusted. And, you know, now he's working on CNN, and he seems to be doing just fine. Maybe he'll turn and his I story guess, into a new TV show called, uh, I don't know, Wise Guy. <laughs> yeah, why not? I mean, he was he lived it. Yeah. So nobody would be more uh, expert on it than he would be. But it's, isn't that amazing? It really I mean, is. I, I just can't get over it when I think about it. It's Absolutely. Just, you know, and it's and no, it's, it's it's wonderful. Again, for, for a TV show to touch somebody, it's very rare, really. Yeah, it really is, to that degree, yeah. Exactly, you know. I mean, even the Trekkies, they don't become astronauts. Somehow. I guess, <laughs> I guess some, some were inspired by that. Yes, so, absolutely. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I guess it's it's kind of like that. Yep, but, exactly. Um, yeah, when you when you can do that, you really know that is to make to have made an impact. It just makes you feel so good that yeah. uh, you've, you've really done something in your lifetime to impact somebody to that degree. Yeah, and, and I really mean that. Oh, yeah. You know how people always say, "Well, if I can uh, if I can help just one person in the world, then I I will have feel uh, satisfied that I helped." It's it's that kind of a thing. And I know it's actually been more than one. So, um, but he was the one because he was younger who went and did it. The other guys were all older who had already done it, and then were were uh, very gracious to say how much they liked the portrayal and how uh, real it was. This was a little bit different because he was younger and then went on. Right, it really inspired, that. impacted his life yeah, that way. To become yeah. it, yeah. Exactly. So. You know, you say about reaching out and helping someone, and it's something I wanted to bring up, is a lot of people know that you were injured and they retired from acting as a result of the accident that you had. But these days, you're very involved, even in the background, of trying to help others. I mean, I've been reading that you've got two things going, basically. It's a program, Pets for Vets and Pause Act. And yeah. for people who aren't familiar with these things, I'd love to sort of, A, find out how you got involved in this, and B, what it's all about. Okay, be happy to, yes. Uh, just a, a quick personal note before that. Yeah, after I got hurt and had to retire, I went through a very bad time of feeling useless and worthless, which is something that I was not used to. And it took me a long time to get out of that because I really couldn't do much. And I just felt like I was just taking up space. And it was just a horrible, horrible time feeling that way. Anybody that feels useless and worthless is going to go through a very difficult time mentally because you have to constantly justify your own existence. And that is unpleasant. Yeah. to say the least. 
So about 10 years ago in 2010, I was what happened to be watching the news and I saw this person with a, in a military uniform talking about veteran suicide. And I was drinking a cup of coffee and I slurped as he said how many suicides there were. So I'm watching and he said 22 suicides of veterans per day. Wow. And because I slurped, I thought I didn't hear him right. I thought, did he say 22 per day? That can't be right. Come on. So I listened, and then during the course of the conversation, he repeated that. Is it 22 veterans per day committing suicide? How many? That's 500, 600, over 600 a month? That's insane. So I said, I got to do something. I got to do. Now, keep in mind, I had been off the face of the earth for 10 years already, more than that, almost 20 years. Um, but I said, you know, nobody remembers who I am. No. And even if they do, they don't care because it's been so long, but still, I got to try to do something. I, I just, it, it just hit me so hard that I, I could not believe that I think 22 suicides in a decade is too many, right. let alone per day. Absolutely. So this is right at the time that I started to get on Twitter and I, I just said, well, I'm just going to shout it out to who anybody, anybody who cares to listen to me. So it started very small and it grew from that, grew from that. And of course, my wife, Shane, she helps that she's really good with the computer and typing and all that. So we were just shouting out from the mountaintops, if you will, to anybody who cared to listen about this horrible situation. And gradually it grew and grew and grew. And a lot of people got on board and a lot of other people had their own organizations trying to combat the same thing. So we came together and, and the most recent thing is called the PAWS Act, which stands for Puppies Assisting Wounded Servicemen. Okay. Um, we're lucky enough now that it has passed the House and it is now sitting in the Senate. It was introduced by a representative, John Rutherford of Florida, and a supporter, a big supporter, was the K9 for Warriors, K9s, excuse me, for Warriors in 2017, which is a, a great organization uh, that tries to connect comfort service dogs to veterans uh, for, that have PTSD. Right. So it's passed the House, it's now in the Senate, and uh, this, the sponsoring senator is Deborah Fisher from Nebraska. It's S-1014 is the name of the bill. So what this bill does, it gives grants to organization to give free service dogs and service slash comfort dogs to vets with PTSD. And it's about $25,000 to train each dog for them. So oh, wow. the purpose, yeah, it's, it's quite a bit. But that's why we need the government's help. And when I say the government, I mean the people, because the people are the government. And I'm a big believer in that. So, yes, it would take um, tax money would be set aside for this purpose. And I, I can't think of a better one. And the whole purpose of this is try to reduce, well, eliminate veteran suicide. But, you know, one step at a time, we want to, uh, of course, reduce it to right. eliminate it. But we, we, we're not going to go to zero immediately but you know i know there's a lot of people that think that because um not just me but a lot of people that are animal advocates and activists they think that we're misanthropes and i just want to make this point not everybody but there there is a significant minority out there that think that and we are not at all we do not choose animals over people we try to promote the synergy between animals and people that the animals help the people and vice versa. So that's what we're going for. We want animals for people, not animals versus people. Right. I really want to make that point very strongly to, to get that idea out of there because it's simply not true. And nobody needs these animals more than veterans with PTSD. And a lot of them, of course, are missing limbs. A lot of them have TBI, which is traumatic brain injuries. Uh, 
and the comfort that these animals serve, not just the service that they provide for them, but the comfort that they give to these men and women is incredible. And we've heard so many stories about how these animals have gotten people out of deep, deep depression. Really? Yes. And they don't have the ideation anymore of suicide because they have this tremendous connection with the animal. And I know just in my own case, although I've never been in combat and you know, I don't know what that's like, and I don't pretend to. I want to make that very clear. But I went through my own very deep depression because of my feelings of uselessness. And to be able to help to take care of an animal and the animal giving me that unconditional love that's always talked about in return really helped me get me out of my own funk. So I thought if if that can help me, maybe it can help others too, especially these guys and these extreme examples. And it's been remarkably successful. You know, of course, it's it's not a panacea. We're not saying, you know, uh, you're a veteran with PTSD, get a dog and everything will be fine. Right, We're not of saying course. that. Right. We're just saying that it will be helpful. Yeah. So... Well. You got to figure that if if a lot of these guys, and I don't know if this is the case or not, but if a lot of these guys are sort of isolated and feeling alone, at least you'll have that connection with the animal, which will hopefully inspire. Exactly right. And, yeah. And you, know, you got to remember, too, these guys who have been trained to take care of things and the, the feelings of uselessness that they have and worthlessness and just not being able to fend for themselves is extremely depressing. Yeah. I mean, it was in my case, so it's got to be tenfold for them. Easily, right. Yeah. So, uh, and it's it's been very helpful. That's now, great. I also want to make the point that, please, um, any domestic animal that will be helpful is great. You know, of course, dogs and cats are the most popular. But I would just warn against getting any wild animals. Please do not, even when they're babies. I know they're adorable when they're babies. But please, no wild animals, domestic animals only, please. Yeah. I mean, even if, uh, dog, cat, horse, hamster, you know, whatever you like, that's fine. Goats, you know, if you have pet goats, that's fine because those are all domestic animals. Right. But please, I can't emphasize enough, no wild animals. You're not doing yourself or that animal a favor. And I assume there have been cases where people have given, here, here's a little tiger cub, enjoy it. <laughs> yes, exactly. And those little tiger cubs are cute as hell. I mean, they're just adorable. But they don't stay tiger cubs. No. Those big things, they grow up and they're wild. And they... Will eat you. <laughs> yes, they, <laughs> they will, will eat, eat you. you. <laughs> right. Right. And not, not think twice about it. Exactly. It's not like having a little kitty cat. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, you know, and some people do that with the baby alligators, and even they're kind of cute when they're babies. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> but, um, well, compared to the adult ones, they yeah, are. they're fair enough. So, um, please don't. Right. I, I can't implore people enough to please stay away. Let wild animals be wild. Now, what can people do, though, about this pause act? What role can they play? Who can they contact? I mean, how does that work? So, yeah, I just wanted to add one very important point to something that I said uh, a little earlier, and that is be sure that when you get an animal, it is a rescue domestic animal. Okay, There are so many animals that need to be rescued, and the act of rescuing is therapeutic in and of itself for the animal and the human. So I just wanted to make that very important point. That is the, the whole crux of everything of what we're doing. Please contact your U.S. senator from your state and tell them that you support the PAWS Act and you want to vo them to vote for it in the Senate. Now, this is a bipartisan bill, okay? So it's not a, it's not a political ping-pong thing. Nobody's right. scoring any political points. I really want to make that clear yeah. as well. It's a good uh, point to but, make, yeah. Uh, yeah, because both Republicans and Democrats want to help our veterans. And um, so there's no issue there. Okay, so right. please call your U.S. senator, not your state senator. Some people make that mistake. You know, there's state senators and then there are U.S. senators. This is your U.S. senator. You have two for each state. So please call your U.S. senators from your state in which you reside and tell them that you want them to vote for the PAWS Act to help 
veterans with PTSD. Sounds good. Sounds really yeah. good. Yeah. Thank you very much. Oh, absolutely. I really appreciate it. Hey, no problem at all. Of course, you're not getting off this megaphone without talking a little bit about Wise Guy. <laughs> okay, no, I'm, I'm fine with that, but this is so near and dear to my heart. Oh, I know it is. This is yeah. my, my life's purpose now. Yeah. And, um, you know, talking about wanting to help, I mean, this is literal life and death. Yeah, absolutely. So to prevent these guys who have given everything, sacrificed everything, um, you know, to be able to help them to prevent their suicide, nothing can top that. Yeah. To you save know, a life is the ultimate. Absolutely. And you're saving a, the animal's life and the person's life. Yeah. So there is definitely a symbiosis there. You know, so, you said earlier, though, that, you know, when you heard the suicide rate and all that and you were suffering through your own issues, uh, what impact has doing is doing all this having on you? Oh, yeah. Well, <clears throat> that's one thing I I have always been reluctant to get into activism because so often in this incredible media world that we live, not just social media, but the actual media world, that we, I believe, this is just my own personal view, is that too often the activism becomes about the activist and not about the cause too often. Right. So that's why when you see these celebrities getting behind things, I'm really torn about it because on one hand you could say, okay, because the person, and I'm not saying I am, I'm saying these other you know, people that are really well known in the world. Okay. You can draw a lot of attention because that person is so well known, but so often so much of the attention goes on that person and not enough on the cause in which they are behind. And that bothers me. But in this case, I figured, okay, I'm not really a celebrity. I'm not completely anonymous, but I'm not so, because I've been gone for so long, there's not so many people that know me. So I thought I was in a good spot that there's not going to be too much attention put on me right. and more about the cause itself. So I got a, a little bit of name recognition from the past because of my job and what I've done, but not so much that people will be more interested in me rather than the cause. Does right. that all make sense? Yeah, it does. Yep. Okay. So I thought I was really in a sweet spot there for this. So it's had a tremendous, just me personally, it's had a tremendous effect on me to feel valuable again, to feel useful again, to feel helpful again. It completely got me out of my depression. And I just to feel connected to the world again yeah, and to do something altruistic because I, I want to make this known too. I get nothing out of this, but satisfaction. I get no money whatsoever and moreover don't want any because that would ruin it. I'm doing this because I want to do it. I want to be helpful. I want to be connected because I know what it's like to be useless and it's horrible. It's just a horrible feeling. Yeah. And I, under, although I can honestly say I think that I would I never did consider suicide myself, even in the depths of my depression. But I will say I was ambivalent. I would say, God, Mother Nature, whatever power there is in the universe, if you want to take me now, go ahead. Wow. Because I'm serving no purpose here anyway. So if you want to but I, I could never do that to my family. Right. The committee was I could just could never do that. However, I do understand it now, though. I understand the despair, the anguish that people go to that lead them to suicide. And that is something I'm actually grateful for because before this happened, before I got hurt and went through all that, I had no idea. How could a person commit suicide? Could things really be that horrible where you're going to take your own life? I never really understood that before. Now I do. Wow. I understand that despair, even though I would never do it myself. I understand how other people can get to that point, that darkness. That's some education, seriously. It really, it really is. Yeah. And a very valuable one. And that just makes me want to help more because I get it. I get it. If you get to that point of such incredible uh, psychological and emotional anguish that you just can't see yourself 
living anymore. I want to help yeah. the best I can. And especially, of course, for all people, but these people in particular who have sacrificed everything and have faced death on a daily basis and just by virtue of them being in the military. Right. So it's like, to me, that is the cruelest irony of all. It's like you've gone through the war. You've had people shooting at you and throwing grenades at you and getting bombed. And you survived that. And then you come home and you're going to kill yourself after surviving the war. Right. That to me is like, no, that's just wrong. Any way you look at it, it's just so I would do anything I can to try to prevent that. And that is my purpose in life now, which is by far more important and satisfying than anything I ever did as an actor. And I'm not putting that down. I'm just saying by, because I was very grateful to have been able to been an actor and the things that I've done. I'm very, very grateful for that. But this by far, especially because of uh, my own personal experiences with despair and anguish is far more important than any of that. So I'm, I'm very happy to do it. That's great. Seriously. I don't know how I'm supposed to talk about a TV show now after all that. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's all part of life. It's all it's, part of life. There you go. That's okay. You know. And, um, you know, look, a lot of these people that are in despair, one of the joys that many of them have that from the you know, over the 10 years now, I've heard from hundreds of these people, and not just them directly all the time, but a lot of times their families, their mothers, their siblings. Um, and a lot of things like they'll, they'll tell me that the only joy that uh, Tom gets is by watching old Gunsmoke reruns, right. for example. You know, because when he was a kid, or his, well, he used to watch this with his father. And so it gives him great memories. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with talking about a TV show after that. You know, we can go from that heaviness to something a little lighter. That's okay. <laughs> there you go. All right, let's let's do that. <laughs> you know, that's and what's it. the point of TV shows anyway, except to bring people a little pleasure, a little joy. Exactly. Hey, you know what? I'll agree with nothing that. Wrong, nothing wrong with that. Yep. And let's face it, I mean, I don't care if it was a small audience or not. You go back to something like Wise Guy, which was the first TV show to start telling stories in the story arc format, really. It was so entertaining. It engrossed people. Again, even if it was a small audience, they couldn't get enough of it. And, it, you know, it is gets credit as, I think, the show that started binge TV. That's what I hear, yeah. Wasn't it at uh, Comic-Con? That they had that where it was there was they, a panel of that. It is that that the wise guy was the show that started binge yeah, TV. Exactly, yeah. there was a panel on that. And uh, so, yeah, what's I your what's your feeling though when you when you hear things like that? And of course, having done the show, what do you think is the power of Wise Guy? Well, I think especially at the time when you take it in historical perspective. You know, we started that show. It aired. It began in uh, September of 1987, and ran through May of 1990. And at that time, as you said, there really were no shows that did that format like we did, where we told a story, which is commonly referred to as as arcs. I just call them storylines, where we would have anywhere from four to eight episodes that would tell a particular story. And that just wasn't done at that time. And one of the reasons we had a relatively smaller audiences, audience was because there was no binging back in those days in the sense that like we do now, where they will show an episode over and over again and you can watch, they'll have the binge on the TV and they have the streaming services where you can binge and all that. Back in those days, you had the original show on in, in during the season, during this regular season, and then you had one shot to see it again during the summer reruns. Right. And that was it. And then the following September, the new season would start. So if you watch the show and you happen to miss an episode, you're going to be completely lost because you have to see every show in order to follow what's going on. So that is one of the reasons we had a a relatively small audience. However, the ones that did stick with it, I think that they loved that format so much, as well as the stories, of course. They they love the uh, the characterizations, but I I know that so many of them because I've I've heard it throughout the years. 
probably thousands of times now, how they loved that, that it was a continuation because most every other show, if not every other show back then, was completely self-contained. It was, okay, you have a beginning, middle, and end in, in 30 minutes or 60 minutes, and then it was never referred to again, and the next episode was repeated that all over again. No impact on the characters at all. Yes. Yeah. So just that alone, I think, was so new at that time that people really caught on to that. But I think beyond that, it was not just a regular police show. As you know, there was, I think there's more police shows than any, if you go all the way back to the beginning, maybe Westerns. But, you know, I remember um, reading something in the late 50s, early 60s, that 17 of the top 20 shows were Westerns. I believe it. Absolutely. <laughs> something like that. It was an incredible number. I mean, I might not be exact on that, right. but it was something close to that. And then Westerns just died. Um, but there are, right from the beginning of television, there's always been police dramas. And the one thing that really separated our show from so many other police dramas is that we didn't just concentrate on the criminals and the crime. We concentrated on the relationships between, in this case, an undercover agent and his quarry, and also his family and his friends and his neighborhood. And that was something that was really unusual, and people seemed to really responded to it. Absolutely. You know, and you, I mean, what's interesting, too, is they didn't just cast stock actors like, oh, this actor's in, like in the old days of Universal, right? The Universal contract, the same actors would appear on all the different Universal shows. You got the opportunity to work with Ray Sharkey and Mel, and Mel Prophet, I was going to say, Kevin Spacey yeah. and, and Jerry Lewis and Tim Curry. I mean, that must have been right. incredible like for a relatively. Happy Harry. Yeah. And, and Patty Darvinville. And, yeah, I mean, and the list goes on and on. Paul McCrane, yeah. Well, to be fair, in, in earlier days, studios did have players under contract. So, right. of course, they're going to use them. Sure, of course. You know, after the studio system ended, everybody's a free agent now. So you have that, you have a much larger pool of actors from which to hire. So that just makes sense. You know, I'm sure that if, if Cannell had contract players, he would have used them. So Fair they enough. would have been used over and over. So thank God he didn't. Right. You know, so that all the actors that we hired were free agents. And one of the great things about that was that um, very early on, within the acting community, we got a, we had a really good reputation. So people within the acting community heard about Wise Guy and really wanted to be on the show for two reasons. Number one, they knew that they were going to do quality work, or at least the attempt for quality work was going to be there. And number two, they didn't have to commit for long periods of time. They could sign on for four to eight episodes, do some good quality work, make a decent paycheck, and then move on. So that made it very popular. That's why we were able to get people like Jerry Lewis and Ron Silver and Norman Lloyd and Stephen Joyce. I mean, a lot of these, some of these names might not be familiar to people, but they would know them if they saw them because they're great character actors that have been around forever and been in, in hundreds of things. So they would know who they are. So yeah, we were so fortunate in the in the people that we were as Stan Shaw. Uh, I mean, there's so many people that c come to mind. And God, there was just so many. Even um, oh man, I don't want to forget his name. Eddie Bracken. That's who right. Goes back, you know, goes <laughs> yep. back to the '40s, as does, of course, Norman Lloyd, who is still alive, by the way. Yeah. At the tender age of 105. It's <laughs> amazing, right? God bless him. I mean, you know, we just lost Kirk Douglas, and yeah. he was 103. But uh, Norman Lloyd, he's the champ yep. as far as longevity goes. As far as I know, I don't think there's anybody alive as an actor that's beyond 105 years old. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, I think um, the woman, Olivia de Havilland, is still alive, I yeah. believe, and I think she's, she's 102 or 103, something like that. And, of course, uh, Betty White. She's 98. She's getting close. A couple years still at the century mark. That's right. But um, I digress. I'm sorry about that. That's no problem. Uh, no, just, no, no. just having all the people that we had was just incredible. And, uh, and the musicians that we, you know, Mick Fleetwood and Glenn Fry. I think I mentioned them already. But yeah, with Tim Curry and. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah, Deep really Hall. 
I just, we just had wonderful people. Uh, Paul Winfield, Paul McCrane. I mean, just it was just wonderful. A great, just a great. And it was so great. You know, you'd have this group come in, and they do all this great work, and everybody's got along. It was one thing I know we've talked about before is that uh, we had a great set. There was no tension. Yeah. It was very uh, amiable, and people really enjoyed working on the show. There was no behind-the-scenes backstabbing or anything like that. Everybody really was of one mind to do the best possible work they could, and they were given that opportunity right. and really did appreciate being there with us, and we, in return, appreciated them. If you look back at uh, 1987 through 90 and you see what the top 20 shows were, there's not many of them that are remembered anymore right. now. Because most TV back then was pretty god-awful. I mean, you know what used to be on opposite? I'll give you an example. And who used to beat us soundly in the ratings? Mr. Belvedere. <laughs> what is wrong with the world? Go ahead. <laughs> no, you know what, though? I, I actually don't blame it. I remember when I had my first meeting with Cannell. I told him, I said, you know, the, the, I love this format that you have and the, the multi-episode story arcs. I just love that. But you know, this show is never going to be a huge ratings right. success because for the reasons I mentioned before, you got to stick with this show. You cannot no. miss an episode. And back then, everybody was used to saying, oh, whatever show, they, if you watch Mr. Belvedere one week, right, and you miss it for a week or two and come back later, you're not going to miss exactly. anything. That's exactly right. It's still going to be... It's gonna still gonna be a stupid right. sitcom, okay? And it's, you're not gonna miss any deep plot lines in it. But with our show, yeah. you do. I I told him, I said, look, I'm not big on doing publicity anyway. But I said, even if I was, I could go door to door to every house in America <laughs> and say, please watch this show. And you're still you're only gonna get five percent of them that'll do that because they're gonna get frustrated. They watch the show and they wait till next week. And then a lot of times we would get preempted too. So then people would have to wait right. two weeks. I tell you, we used to get a lot of letters of complaint about I that. didn't write it, but write letters, but I felt the complaint in my head. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. And, and of course, most people do. You know, only a small percentage of people are actually going to write. But when they would complain about that, so we'd figure, well, that's both good and bad because the fact that they're right, it shows that they want to see the show. But it's very frustrating, and we did lose some audience because they just couldn't stand having to wait a week, let alone two weeks, if we happened to get preempted. Absolutely. You know, there was that problem because, it's, like I said, there was no binging back in those days. So that limited, automatically limited right. our audience. And we we knew that. We all knew that. So when we didn't get huge ratings, nobody was panicking or shocked by that. But I will say, I, wanted to, I do want to give credit to a, a man named Kim LeMasters, who was the head of programming at CBS at the time. And there was no reason, ratings-wise, that our show sh should have been salvaged. But it was, twice, by Kim LeMasters, because he personally liked the show very much and loved that format and the characterizations and the stories, the writing, everything about the show. So he alone saved the show because... Everybody else wanted it canceled because the ratings right. were quite low. And he stuck with it, and I'm very grateful that he did. Absolutely. You know, for those three yeah. seasons. Yeah, because we thought with the ratings coming in, when we started off, we were against a juggernaut. We were up against Cheers, which was, as you know, a monster show, right. top 10. If not number one, it might have even been number one at that time. We started out on Thursday. Now, that's just a half-hour show right. sitcom. But that was our first half hour. And, of course, we got <laughs> creamed. And then they switched to Wednesday nights, which helped us out somewhat. But we still weren't getting large numbers. Like I said, Mr. Belvedere used to be. Uh, I just can't picture Vinny Terranova I mean, getting I, beat up by Mr. Belvedere. You know, it's just. <laughs> I'm Mr. Belvedere. <laughs> that was pretty comical yeah. now. But at the time, so we thought, you know, we'd get through the Sonny Steelgrave storyline. And that would be it. We thought that like in the third, fourth episode, and uh, we increased a little bit, but not enough to justify renewal. So we just kept plugging away at it. And uh, again, it was Kim LeMasters 
uh, said, no, I, I'm keeping this show. I don't, I don't care that the ratings aren't that big because he was, he was very right. proud of it, of that show. So that's why we were able to stay on for Thank goodness. Seasons. Seriously. Cause it did, it did have an yeah, impact. You know? Yeah, it, it did. I'm very great. You know, for, for yourself that. though, of those arcs, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have the nerve to bring you through all the arcs, but I would ask you, what is your favorite and why of the different arcs that you did? Yeah. You know, this is kind of like, uh, picking your children. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have obviously the very first one because it was the very first one among other things, of course. I mean, I loved Ray Sharkey. I love that. That was what we started out with. It was a pretty much a traditional mob kind of thing. And, um, I liked very much that whole form. I thought that Ray and I had good chemistry. Uh, Ray was very happy to be there. We got along great. We stayed friends till the day he died, which unfortunately was not too too many years after that. But so I have a soft spot in my heart for that. But I also have a soft spot for the next one, which is the Mel and Susan Prophet. Why? Because it was so wildly right. different. You know, as I remember getting some letters during the first arc saying that, are you going to repeat this? Because people knew that this was a, a set series. How many do we do? Eight or nine? For, for which one? Episodes of Ray Sharkey was, uh, I I mean, actually, I believe it was 10 episodes for that. Did it I think so. 10? Are you counting the uh, standalone as well? Because that really wasn't no, a standalone. Wasn't. That's, that's a different subject. So yeah, okay, yeah. whatever it was, yeah. nine or 10. But once people realized that that's how it was going to be, they were asking, well, are you just going to do um, mafia stuff? And I would never reply to those letters because I wanted them to be surprised. And, oh, man, were they ever <laughs> surprised? Because to go from something like Sonny Steelgrave to Mel Prophet, which is so on the opposite end of the spectrum, even though it was still organized crime, it still came under the heading of organized crime, but it was just so completely different than the relationship that Vinny had with Sonny, who were basically two guys that could have grown up and maybe even did grow up in the same neighborhood, but they didn't know each other. To this wacky, crazy guy, brilliantly played by Kevin Spacey, who was this international arms dealer and drug addict and only the toes knows. <laughs> and that's all right. you, couldn't get any more, you couldn't get any more different from Sonny Steelgrave than Mel Prophet. So I love that one for right. that reason too. So that's that, and then of course I the most the most unmitigated fun that I had was during the music arc right. storyline. That one was just a blast for me because anybody that knows the show knows that Vinny was always torn between continuing doing his job and quitting. And many times he had conversations with McPike, brilliantly played by Jonathan Banks, saying that, you know, I never want to see another lie again as long as I live. I'm out. I'm getting out of here. And that happened a few times. With the music arc, Vinny actually was enthusiastic about doing that job. So that, as the character goes, was very different. So that's, but for me personally, it was so much fun to play that. Vinny completely lost himself, completely forgot at times that he was an undercover agent and really was fancying himself as this hot shot record (laughs) producer. And so that, that was so much fun to play and to be with all of Mick Fleetwood and Glenn Fry, who was, uh, God rest his soul too. He was just a wonderful guy. I just loved that guy. He, he was just such a sweet guy, and he, he too, he really wanted to be on the show, and he was very happy to be there. And I even got to jam with him and sing with him. So it, it was just so much fun for me yeah. to do that one. So that one is a favorite of mine, too. So it, it's it's pretty hard to pick one. But I, I guess if you really had held a gun to my head, like Sonny Stilke <laughs> would do, I guess I would have to pick the Sonny Steelgrave one overall, mainly because it was the first one. And, and people were really, many people were really shocked that at the end, when Sonny kills himself, electrocutes yeah. himself, which is pretty ironic because um, if it weren't for lethal injection, he probably would have gotten the electric chair anyway, <laughs> you know, for first degree murder. Um, so, yeah, I guess in overall that 
My my firstborn has to be my favorite. And the audience, no doubt, thought he'd live forever. Anyway, forever. <laughs> and people who don't, haven't seen it will have no yeah. idea what we're doing, but we do. So that that's all that matters. <laughs> yeah, but, but there's one thing I want to say, too, is that the, there's an underlying subplot through the entire 65 episodes of that show, and that is the relationship between Vinny and McPike. Because yeah. if you remember, that at, at the beginning, McPike does not like Vinny at all. He thinks, oh, he's this snot-nosed punk who thinks he's a hot shot, and he's going to go in. And their relationship grew as they wanted, as they went on, until they became family. I mean, they went out camping together, and they were telling each other their problems with the women in their lives and all that. So, uh, And right up to the end, when Vinny ran away from Lynchboro and he hid out in the church in Seattle— and McPike and, and lifeguard finally tracked him down. And McPike sees Vinny, and they hug each other for dear life in the church there. I mean, that's the whole arc of that relationship from beginning yeah. to end of the whole series. And, of course, the very last shot of Vinny was looking over McPike being shot on the in the hospital. Right cajoling McPike to come out of it and, you know, don't die on me, Frank, yeah. don't die. And uh, so from beginning to end, and, and that was something that I um, suggested. Uh, I'll, I'll go further than that. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I pretty much demanded that, uh, to be that honest. That evolution. Because that evolution of the Vinnie McPike relationship, yes. And the reason for that is because I said, look, Vinny is a guy that's risking his life every day. You got this guy who's his field supervisor that can't stand him. So Vinny would not put up with this under the stress and pressure that he is under. He would go to to McPike's boss, who was name what was his name? Uh, oh my god, Elias. Yes, thank yeah. you, Elias. Played by JJ Jackson. Yep. Was that his name? We're, we're doing good, Ken. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, I think anyway. Vinny would have gone to Elias, McPike's boss, and said, look, I can't work with this guy. I'm risking my life out here. Vinny could pop me in the back of the head at any moment, and I got to put up with this asshole? No, it's it's not happening. So that, to me, just rang highly false and just untrue. So I said, I can remember in the second episode, they called lunch, and I went to Jonathan. I said, Jonathan, let me ask you this. I want to have this relationship grow. And Jonathan loved it. He said, I'm on board, gave me the thumbs up. I said, okay. So once I had his blessing, then I went directly to Cano and said, what do you think? And Cano was a little bit, had to be sold a little bit because at first he, he thought, well, I don't want it to turn into, this is Cano talking, I don't want it to turn into, oh, you big lug, <laughs> you, you know, with the, with the fist on the chin type of thing. I said, no, 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 no. It's got to be a real thing where it slowly progresses and that, that uh, McPike slowly gains respect for Vinny and what he's doing. And also empathy for Vinny for what he's going through after he gets bent a little bit by the um, Sonny Steelgrave situation. He has to go to therapy and all that stuff. And if you remember, at the end of that, that arc, when the Vinny and Sonny are in the theater and Sonny electrocutes himself, McPike comes breaking in with the state police and the other feds, and Vinny says to McPike, I wish right. it was you. And right then we see a change in McPike because he sees how deeply disturbed Vinny is. And McPike, instead of saying, hey, go f*** yourself, Vinny, he says, no, you don't, Vinny. You don't wish it was me. He says, come on. And he leads him by there because we st- we're still undercover right. at this point. So McPike has to act as though he's arresting Vinny. So he's walking him out, and you know, Vinny stops, and McPike says, don't look back, man. Yeah. Just keep going. So there is where the first time we see McPike becoming protective of Vinny, and then it just yeah. went from there. So that is a, a, of the relationship, of all the relationships that Vinny had, good and bad, and that is my favorite one because it's it's throughout the entire run of the yeah, show. Absolutely. And, and it is, again, that evolution that makes it so engrossing, whether we're talking the evolution of the villains or we're talking about the relationship between Vinny and Frank and Lifeguard. I mean, it's just wonderful to watch that change and that growth. Right. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you. Yeah, that's something I, I'm re- especially proud of because that was a, a, an underlying um, subplot through the entire show. And, and also, yes, uh, Lifeguard as well. N- not to the extent right. of, of McPike, of course, because McPike is, is Vinny's field supervisor. But, of course, we delved into the relationships of, of Lifeguard as Absolutely. well. You know, you know, is, is it a question yeah. of now? Here's a show that's critically acclaimed, has all these amazing guest stars, has a lot going for it, and and is it a question of a show burning? You know, what is the expression? You know, burning twice as bright burns half as long. I mean, why did? I mean, yeah, is that yeah. why the show had a short? I think, wasn't that a line in the show? I don't know if it was in the show. I know I it from Blade Runner, so I don't know if it was in the show. But I know it from Blade Runner. Okay, uh, I think we might. There but man, that that really rings familiar to me, not just in general, but yeah. in the show. I, I, something to that effect. It might not have been exact. Anyway, so, so that's the question, though. I mean, is that why you think Wise Guy could only like have a short span, like it lasted the three seasons with you? Did, do you think that's the reason that it was just it burnt itself out, basically? Yes, absolutely, without question. And we know from day one that we were a five season show because it just would not be logical or. It wouldn't make any sense for Vinny to remain undercover any longer than that because how would people not find out? I mean, his picture appeared in the papers with uh, the prophets. Um, everybody knew, then they, and they knew that he was with Sonny Steelgrave. So Vinny was getting too well known for his own good. So if we tried to milk it anymore, it wouldn't. It wouldn't have worked, in my opinion. Creatively, it just would not have worked. Now, I did, even though the last arc did not go as, as I would have liked, I didn't, I, I thought we didn't really do well in that That's one. a Lynchborough arc you're talking about, but, right? Oh, okay. The Lynchborough arc, yeah. But the one thing I did like about it was they sent Vinny away, gave him a different last name, and sent him to the West Coast 3,000 miles away, which to me, that part was very yeah. logical. You know, because he wasn't, and he wasn't even a city guy. He was like a country bumpkin kind of a guy. So so that was a a great undercover assignment on its face because it's like, well, we got to get Vinny out of here because he's just getting too well known here. If we're still going to use him, if he's still going to be an asset to us, we got to send him somewhere else where he's going to do some good. And so they sent him to the Pacific Northwest. So that part, unfortunately, was about the only part that worked (laughs) in it. But yeah, the, the the writing staff was fried. We were pretty much burnt out by then. And uh, there were some circumstances that caused that too when I got run over by the camera dolly and then they had to replace me with um, Anthony Dennison. Anthony Dennison, uh, who did a great job. And uh, I've always said uh, my line for him is he was a great pinch hitter. As we're very grateful we were able right. to get him. And David Burke, the head writer, knew him before from Crime Story, worked with him before. So he filled in and did a great job for me. But it really screwed everything up. I mean, it it, it screwed up the, the rag trade arc with Jerry Lewis. And, and it was my idea to get Jerry Lewis. And I was hardly ever able to work with him at all because you know, I had to go in a hospital after I got run over by the camera nice. dolly. That mishap on the set really was the beginning of the end. Because everybody was scrambling right. after that, and it was just a nightmare. So, you know, I don't blame the writers at all. They were working under impossible conditions. And I, I do think if we were able to um, go on hiatus and say, okay, we struck out in the season, at the end of season three, let's go back to spring training and, uh, you know, get it together. I know that we could have come back stronger in season four. But the writing staff was more burnt out than even I was. And they said, no, that's it. Um, so that was the end. And I wasn't about to go on the show. There was some speculation back at the time. The media tried to make a big thing. Out. Did he jump or was right. he pushed? You know, And it, it, it was neither. It was, it was by mutual agreement. Cannell and I had a talk. It was very amiable. There was, there was no animosity whatsoever. I said, you know, Steve, I, I just can't see trying to do this with a whole new writing staff. You know, I, I think let's call it a day. And he said, okay, fine. You know, I don't want to force you to do something you don't want to do because that's 
that's just going to be a disaster right. anyway. So, you know, they decided, we mutually decided in a very friendly way to part ways. And then he gave it a shot and brought in Stephen Bauer, who's a, you know, I, I know Stephen uh, not well, but, um, you know, he's a, an acquaintance, a nice guy. And he came in and tried to salvage what was left with a new writing set, and it just, it right. just didn't work, and it just yeah, faded away. Absolutely. I mean, they they canceled it during the airing of the first episode, so it just wasn't to be. So, so, so. Ken, when you look at all of this, since our lives are a composite of everything we've been through, when you look at your your acting career, the films you've made, Wise Guy, the injury, the uh, pets for vets, pause, all of this stuff together. I mean, what is your overall feeling looking at things? I mean, you know, what, how do you feel these days looking at, at the whole thing, the whole ball of wax? I'm, I'm afraid this is going to sound trite, but I feel incredibly fortunate, incredibly lucky. I really do because yes, I've had some unfortunate um, instances, but those unfortunate instances could have been so much worse. And by the way, the accident that I had that fractured my neck vertebrae, I had, oh, oh God, I've seen scores of doctors, neurologists and orthopedists and this and that. And, and they all said, man, you were really lucky. He said, the kind of accident that you had, you should be dead. It should have severed your spinal cord because the impact was so extreme. And he, they said, short of that, said 95% of people that have a similar accident are dead. The 5% that remain, that survive, 95% of them end up quadriplegic. Wow. Or at least paraplegic. And I was not, I was still able to walk. I was so, you know, if you have the accident, of course, having the accident is unfortunate. But the result of it was extremely fortunate because even though I am in chronic pain and I have some days are very, very bad. Uh, I still go through that, but I can still walk. And I am so very grateful yeah. for that. So what I guess you're asking me is to sum up my life, basically, in a couple <laughs> of sentences. And that's all I is that a challenge? That, like, I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I had no acting training whatsoever. I never had the desire to be an actor until I was about 17 years old. I wanted to be a professional athlete, and I did get in a, a motorcycle. I had a dirt bike. Not a dirt. I didn't have A buddy of mine had a dirt bike. I went on a ride for it and wiped out on it and smashed my knee. Not not terribly bad, but it, it slowed me down quite a bit, so I, I couldn't be uh, a ball player anymore. And I would just watch movies. I saw the movie. You know, I was able to work with Paul Newman when I was very young. And just a couple years before I worked with him, one of my favorite movies was The Sting. Yeah. And I, I've seen that movie probably 50 times. And th that movie made me think, I think I can do this. These guys are great. But, and I realized that there was so much more to just a movie than who's in it and what the story is and all that. So I, I recognized what this incredible chemistry that these two guys had and how important that is. And, of course, we saw it before in Butch Cassidy. Then they repeated it in the sting that it repeated right. the chemistry. And I thought, I got to try this. I said, you know, I don't have any acting training. I never was even in a school play, never had any desire for it. So I went out to California and I said, well, I'll give myself a year and a half. And if nothing works out, I'll go back home, uh, go to a trade school, maybe learn to be an electrician or a plumber or something like that, something of that effect so that I can get into a union and at least make a decent living because I come from a very, very blue-collar right. family, this working class. So I went out to California, and I got the job in my first movie, which was the lead in this movie called The Wanderers, which was about the gangs in the Bronx in the early 60s, right, right before the Kennedy assassination. So I talk about luck. Yeah. I mean, come on. That's, that's just ridiculous. When I think back on it, it's like, how did that ever even right. happen? So, so from there, you know, I was able to continue. I was now making decent money. I was able to help out my family, which was very gratifying. I helped my father retire early because he, both of my parents worked themselves to death, but at least I bought my dad a few more years that he could enjoy. 
and uh, I helped my friends. I, so all of that was what I had dreamed about, being able to do that. Of course, that's why I, when I fell, literally and figuratively, hit me so hard because I couldn't be helpful to anybody anymore. Friends, relatives, strangers, nobody. I just was nothing, and that's what led to my deep despair. So then being able to come out of it by helping others is the best way. So when I look back on everything now, I don't think there are too many lives on this planet that don't have some unfortunate circumstances happen to them. So I can honestly say that when I got hurt, and I got hurt right at the peak of my right. career, too, and offers were coming in like crazy. And there's, you know, not just good creative things, but good money, yeah. too. I never, I can honestly say to you that I never once said, why me? I never, I always said, hey, why not me? Things happen in life, you know? There's there's no way anybody's going to get through this life unscathed. So when I look at look at it that way, and I, on balance, you take the positive things and the negative things, I'm still in the positive. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Classic TV Podcast on Spotify and the exploration of the world of Wise Guy, both fictional and real. And please do contact your U.S. Senators regarding the Pause Act. Also, please subscribe to this podcast, tell your friends about us, and give us a five-star review. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.